You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Trojan fans, it's time for another installment of the Trojan Blast Recruiting Podcast. We give you the inside scoop on everything about USC football recruiting from the experts who know what they're talking about. Which players have an offer, which ones don't, who the coaches like, and who our experts like. And now, here are your co-hosts for the Trojan Blast Recruiting Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher Ryan Abraham, and uscfootball.com national recruiting analyst Gerard Martinez. Welcome to a special edition of the Recruiting Blast Podcast. I'm your host, Kilior, joined by the man, the myth, the legend, recruiting analyst, Gerard Martinez. We have a lot to talk about today. First up, it was a big day for USC because it was NBC's All-American Bowl Declaration Day. And USC picked up two commitments, five-star defensive end Corey Foreman, uh, the composite number one player in the nation, and four-star cornerback Sierra Wright. Gerard, I know we haven't said the word kaboom lately. Is this a kaboom-worthy day for USC? Certainly. We didn't get to see those players on the field, unfortunately, at the All-American Bowl, which we normally do. But NBC was able to have a two-hour special live, and you were able to get two of the top players not just in California, but in the nation. And certainly I think when you're talking about the number one player in California and you kind of come out with that motto, taking back the West, that's a big deal. That's significant. Now, you wrote an article about taking back the West, and I know when I did instant analysis with Shotgun at the Pac-12 championship game, I said it's hard to take back the West when Oregon is celebrating a Pac-12 championship on the Coliseum field. Where do you stand now? I know you wrote something about taking back the West. Where does it stand now when you pick up guys like Corey Foreman and Sierra Wright? Yeah, I think that you have to have a foothold, and it's got to start in California. Certainly the West region, you've got a lot of good players, but a majority of the players, when you're talking about building a complete class, it's going to start in California. So with USC having lost out on the top player in California the last two years, Kayvon Thibodeau and Justin Flo both going to Oregon, this was a huge year. And making that motto, making that sort of creed, oh, hey, we're going to take back the West, you're throwing it out there as a challenge to the other schools, not only in the Pac-12, but, you know, across the nation. Because you look at a lot of very good players nationally that are playing for Ohio State and Notre Dame, Alabama, guys like Najee Harris, guys like Aaron Banks. You've got All-Americans that are playing in places that are not even in the West region. So USC's got to start somewhere. And in writing that article, talking to Greg Biggins, Blair Angulo, Brandon Huffman, all guys that have worked the West Coast beat, we talked a little bit about the strides that you make towards taking back the West. Has USC done it in totality? No. There's still a lot of work to be done, certainly with the adjoining states, you know, going out and getting the number one player, Nevada and Arizona and Washington. Oregon did a really good job this year in doing that. They spread the wealth a little more in terms of the West Coast talent as a region. But USC did a much better job in terms of getting the best players in California. I think ultimately, yes, when you start take, taking back the West, you've got to do it on the field, but you also have to do it on the recruiting trail. And I think USC made a big move towards doing that today. 
Yeah, USC moved up to number eight nationally with its 2021 class. Still number two in the Pac-12, though, behind Oregon. Now, when you talk about keeping talent in California, Corey was the number one prospect in California. I know Biggins has thrown out the G word, the generational talent. How does Corey Foreman look on the field, and does he live up to that billing? Well, he's a little bit of that hybrid type player and really plays that position a little more naturally even than Drake Jackson. And Drake Jackson, when he played at Corona Centennial and he played with Corey Foreman, Drake was a little more of a five technique. He sometimes moved into the three technique, but he was a down defensive lineman, whereas Corey sort of floated around a little more. And we saw him as his junior year. They actually used him a bit even as a middle linebacker to be able to blitz. So he's a guy that plays in a two-point stance. He's played in space. Uh, we saw him uh, this offseason play in an exhibition game in Arizona where really every other series he played as a down lineman, which he's really good at putting his hand down on the ground and just launching as a defensive end. But he also played off the line of scrimmage a little bit as a kind of hybrid linebacker, and he was very successful doing that. He looked very comfortable in space. And I think with this defense, the way they move players around, you've got a lot of hybrid positions. I think he's that type of player that really fits that bill. He's explosive. He's got really good technique. He's really a guy that's a good student of the game, and he's not going to give you the same pass rush twice. And I think with USC, you look at them the last couple of years, offenses have really attacked them at the hash marks. Offenses have really attacked them on the edge of their defense. And so getting the number one player in the nation who's also an edge rusher and a guy that's going to be playing off the edge that really helps reinforce that defense, and it gives you a playmaker there that maybe you know those offenses are not going to be able to exploit the edge against USC in the future. Foreman mentioned in his commitment that uh, the new defense had a real impact on his decision and seeing the improvement that the team made last year from this year. How did Todd Orlando's defense persuade him into making that decision? Well, I think the development of Drake Jackson – the development of the linebacker position in general, the defense played better this year. It was a short year, and there were games where they just looked a little out of sorts, especially early in the season in those first quarters. It looked like USC couldn't tackle in some of those games. But what we saw and what was a big difference from years past with Clancy Pendergast as a defensive coordinator was that Orlando made adjustments. Orlando definitely got the defense to kind of dial in with the pass rush as you got later in games. And we haven't seen that really since Pete Carroll. And that's a big deal because that's always sort of what you have to do as a defense. You've got to have to take that first swing from the offense. You know they're coming out with the script. You've got to be able to see what they do, see what they do well, and then you have to plug those holes and force them to just to you. And that's what Todd Orlando did. And I think that's why you saw the energy levels and just – Overall, the way that the defense attacked the offensive backfield, it was a little different, especially later in games. They made some really clutch play later in games, and I think that has a lot to do with Orlando and him seeing the field. You know, it's one thing to just have a scheme and have all these great plays, but you got to have a feel for play calling. And I think Todd Orlando had a pretty good feel for play calling as the games went on and as the season progressed. Defense really sort of outshined the offense really in a lot of ways. Now, I know people were skeptical about Drake Jackson moving to that hybrid outside linebacker role. Is there skepticism for Corey Foreman fitting into this defense? Like, do you see that being an obstacle where we've kind of seen that with Jackson in a sense? No, I actually think that Corey Foreman does fit that hybrid position, which in Todd Orlando's defense and tight front defenses, they call the joker or the beatback position better than Drake Jackson. Just naturally in terms of athleticism, Corey's a little better in space. He's a little better standing up. Last 
time we saw Corey Foreman playing for Corona Centennial, they actually moved him around a bit as a linebacker in certain third down situations, which are passing situations, third down and long, they'd put him as a middle linebacker and have him sort of move around a little bit and attack the line of scrimmage and blitz. So he's a guy that is used to moving around. He's used to playing off the line of scrimmage. In the exhibition game that uh, Winter Circle played in Arizona, every other series they actually had Corey Miner, uh, excuse me, Corey Foreman, Corey Miner, Corey Miner going back. I've mentioned Corey Miner several times talking about Corey Foreman. Corey Miner was uh, one of the top linebackers from Bishop Amont. Many years ago, a guy that I actually knew a little bit from Bishop Amont and uh, played some pickup games with and ended up being All-American playing for Notre Dame. So I, I think of, sometimes I think of Corey Miner when I'm thinking Corey Foreman. Corey Foreman is a guy that, you know, in that exhibition game, every other series was playing with his hand down as a straight, you know, like a five technique, seven technique, kind of dependent on what the offense was in terms of their splits and in terms of their personnel and attacking line of scrimmage. And then he'd come out and he'd play more as an outside linebacker and he'd play out in space. And so he's done both, whereas Drake Jackson really more at Centennial was just a straight defensive lineman. He'd play uh, the five technique. He'd play sometimes even three technique. And I've said this before, I do feel like ultimately Drake Jackson's highest ceiling is playing as a defensive lineman. I think that when you put him uh, on the outside and, and playing as a one-gap defender and allowing him to just focus on getting into the gap, he has such good instincts. He has such good awareness once he gets in that off the backfield that when it comes to swings, comes to misdirection, he really sniffs those plays out really well. It's not that he can't play in spacing. He can't do what he did last year because I think his development and the plays that he made really attracted Corey to the Trojans' defense. I do think Drake could move inside, and I think you know his long-term potential, which is going to be playing on Sundays, is going to be better playing as an actual defensive lineman. Where I think Corey – you know, just depending on sort of his growth and how much he ends up weighing and where he feels comfortable at, whether it's a 265 or actually a 275, which I think he's closer to that 270, 275 range right now, you know, where he wants to play. I think he's got a little more option on that outside, whether he wants to be in a 34 type of defense, a defense where he's going to be standing up or a guy that puts his hand on the ground and is just firing off the line because he does both really well. And you mentioned the last time we saw Foreman play, but he was injured for half of his junior season and then didn't play because of, uh, or at least his high school season, obviously because of COVID-19. I know he's talented, but is there any concern that he has been a little rusty in the sense that he hasn't played in a while? I mean, that's true of every California player, quite frankly. Uh, he did play a little off and on there in his junior year. He did uh, have a, a knee injury, which thankfully what didn't need surgery. It didn't end up being uh, quite a big deal as they thought it maybe was when he played uh, against uh, Central uh, Catholic, I think it was, uh, or Cathedral Catholic, excuse me, down in San Diego. It was a goal line play. And I mean, it was one of those plays that looked really bad. And so a lot of people feel like, oh, that might be an ACL, but thankfully it ended up not being so. And so he took his time getting back, but he ended up coming back. He ended up being okay. And I think from that standpoint, He's really going to be, you know, trying to catch up with a lot of other players, but he did play competition wise. He did play an exp uh, exhibition game in Arizona and has been training with winter circle and been doing some stuff in pads. Whereas a lot of other players that are in California haven't been able to do so. So um, whether he plays this year or not, he's not going to be a mid-year enrollee. He's not a mid-year graduate. So there is potential that maybe he still plays a season. If there is a season, we're still kind of waiting to see if CIF gets the green light from the California health officials. 
Yeah, so as a fall enrollee, I know guys always say that the spring enrollee time is just really beneficial. It really helps them adjust to the college game. Do you see that delaying Foreman's ability to play immediately at all coming in in the fall? No, no. It's really going to be what USC has in terms of do they have any transfers? Do they have any guys that leave unexpectedly? Uh, is he filling somebody else's role? Um you know, again, what happens with Drake Jackson? Do they do they decide, hey, you know what, we, we want to keep Drake Jackson on the outside or we want to move Corey into that exact position. We want uh, Drake Jackson to maybe play inside or are they going to try to have Corey and Drake Jackson on the field at the same time? They had Hunter Eccles and Drake Jackson on the field at the same time. I will say with Tyler Orlando, again, they used a lot of personnel combinations. I mean, we saw the game against Washington State where they used five safeties on the field at the same time. He's been pretty creative and he has been very aggressive and throwing stuff out there and just kind of seeing what works. So I think of Corey Foreman, being that he's a defensive lineman, really when you're talking about defensive linemen, it's the physicality, which is the biggest issue when it comes to playing early because you're playing against grown men on that offensive line. You're playing against 310, 315-pound guys. They're 20-year-old guys, and you're coming out of high school. There's just a big gap there. It's not so much the cerebral side of the game. It's not so much the, the, the playbook. A lot of times, especially if you're just an outside rusher, you say, hey, man, you watch the ball, and when they snap it, go attack the quarterback. Go attack the offensive backfield. So I think from that standpoint, Corey's athleticism and his physicality and his talent can overcome not being there for 15 practices during the spring. Now, I know when Foreman originally committed to Clemson, it was a big deal. Obviously, it was an indictment on USC's uh, staff, recruiting staff. What does it mean now that they were able to finally land him and get him signed? And what does it mean for, you know, the Dante Williams and USC's revamped defensive recruiting staff? Well, it's huge. I mean, like we talked about a little bit with the staff's energy and just the new defensive staff specifically, that side of the ball really took it upon themselves to get out there on it early and to really make that splash and to make a statement. And again, getting the number one player in the state after losing the number one player in the state two years running was a huge deal. I mean, you couldn't talk about taking back the West if you're not getting the number one player in your own backyard. So just from a statement standpoint, that was huge. USC ends up getting, I think right now they have eight of the top 25 players in California committed or signed. So that's huge. They could end up getting nine if they get Rayshon Davis, a 6'1", 220-pound linebacker, four-star from Modern Day High School. He's another guy that's going to sign later. Uh, he's going to be a guy that kind of is hanging out to see if they're going to play a high school season. He wants to play a senior year. So that would be a linebacker that they would be adding to the class. And I think defensively, overall, when you have Corey there sort of as the pinnacle, sort of the, hey, you know, he's the big-time guy, we're kind of building around him. That whole defensive staff, man, they did such a great job being able to get ahead of the game and be able to find players that are going to be able to step in for guys that are leaving and you're not seeing that gap. Like we've seen on the offensive side of the ball with the offensive line specifically where they've lost some players and they're trying to play catch up, trying to get those guys in the next cycle. You've got to sign those guys before your players are leaving. And so that's what USC has been able to do on the defensive side of the ball. And certainly I think, you know, you've got a tremendous class in the secondary and then you get the number one pass rusher, perhaps in the nation, that's a good combo. That's a combination that's going to be successful for USC down in the future. Well, you mentioned that secondary, and I think it's time we talk about Sierra Wright, the four-star cornerback. What is your evaluation of him, and how does he fit into, I feel like, the 90 million <laughs> defensive backs USC picked up in this class? Yeah, USC ends up having a pretty deep 
defensive back class. And it's very interesting because the defensive secondary definitely played better this year. And it's one of those things where they already had those guys committed early on. You know, the three safeties they had committed before April. They had Zamirion Gordon. Um, they had uh, Jalen Bullock and Anthony Beavers all committed before April. And then you add in Jalen Smith a little later. I mean, they really, before the end of summer, Prophet Brown, everybody was basically done. The only guy they were waiting on was Sierra Wright. Sierra Wright, 175 pounds, about 6'1", really smooth player, a guy that kind of early on in his career, we talked about maybe being a receiver recruit. We saw him, I think, as a sophomore. He was coming out of his freshman year at one of the elite camps and was one of our top performers. He was a really good-looking player, transitioned well, really good speed. He's in that 10.88 area uh, as a junior in track and field, so he's got some good time speed, along with Prophet Brown. That's the big thing, is that USC got two pure corners that are guys that at least have a little bit of track speed. So we're not talking about guys that look fast on film. We're talking about guys that have the actual times next to their name, which is big when you're talking about playing man coverage. And that's what we saw with USC, very aggressive in terms of how they played man coverage. And the season helped. I mean, it was one of those things where they really kind of got it done, but the season definitely reemphasized uh, the defense and sort of the talk and the plans that they had. And I think with Dante Williams, a lot of people talk about him being a great recruiter. And obviously he's proved that time and time again. But he proved this year, he and Craig Niver did a great job with that secondary, it's the best we've seen that secondary play throughout the season, really, in recent memory. You've got to go back, I think, to maybe the Pete Carroll days when you're talking about a man coverage team that really did a good job locking down, not giving up a lot of bad third downs and longs, that the safety position was obviously very involved, not only in the passing game, but in run support as well. So you've got a plethora of guys. And the good thing for USC with that secondary Wright's not going to be a major graduate. So Wright still has to sign in February, but you are getting Zamirian Gordon. You are getting Jalen Smith. You are getting Kalen Bullock, Anthony Beavers. All those guys are actually going to be on campus for spring ball. So at least you're getting a good majority of that defensive backfield because you're going to probably have to replace not only Talano Hufunga, but Isaiah Polamau, and you're going to have to replace Elijah Griffin, you're going to get some of those guys on campus immediately so they can get in there for those 15 practices and they can kind of just immature a little bit and get some, some time, college level, the speed of the game underneath their belt. Yeah, with the news of multiple guys in the secondary entering the NFL draft, how do you see the next depth chart shaking out with the new guys coming in? What, what's the progression that you expect? Well, we wrote a little bit about that with Tolanoa Hufunga leaving and trying to replace him. And obviously, you can't replace him directly. That's not going to happen. Tolanoa, former five-star, played like a five-star, leaves USC like a five-star. And that is so huge for recruiting. That is one of the biggest things and, and really something that I think hurt USC a bit in the past, specifically with Eamon Marshall. Mom Marshall came to USC, looked at by many as a generational talent, and he left USC as a fourth-round guy, a guy that a lot of people thought is an afterthought, didn't leave as a junior, didn't have the junior plan, had to stick around as a safety. I think he did himself a lot of good sticking around as a senior, but he was a guy that didn't really, I guess with everybody, what their anticipation and their expectations were, it didn't necessarily meet. And that really starts to hurt you in terms of development because that gets around on the recruiting trail. A lot of other schools and a lot of other coaches are talking about that 
And when you've got a guy that's looked like that generational talent, and he's not going out as a guy that people are talking about, potentially a first-round pick, it hurts you on the recruiting trail. And with Talano Lafunga, he's leading with the same esteem that he came in. So I think that, first and foremost, is a big deal. Who's going to be able to replace him from a recruiting standpoint? I think you're looking at Zamirian Gordon, 6'2", 195 pounds, Downey High School, a guy that's got great physicality. He's lanky. He's rangy. He's a bit bigger in terms of his frame than Telenovo Funga, but he's going to have to put on the strength to be able to be that force player near the line of scrimmage. Anthony Beavers is actually a guy that I think could end up being a surprise a bit. Now, he potentially at around 200 pounds could bulk up and probably be 210, 215. He's not maybe the fastest guy, but he's very good around the line of scrimmage, and he's got good awareness, good instincts, and he's a really good open field tackler. And one of the guys that I mentioned in that article with Telenohu Funga and trying to replace him was Max Williams. Now, Max Williams played nickelback. He played on the field with Telenohu Funga. But if you're looking for a guy that really made a splash in terms of making plays in the offensive backfield as a defensive back, Max Williams was kind of that guy. So I think really, in, in, in truth, USC is going to have to have a culmination of players that are going to have to fill that void production-wise. And because you're probably losing Isaiah Pulamau, you may see some shifting you know, with guys and, and trying to figure out, okay, who really plays the safety positions the best, who does things the best, who physically fits things the best. Another guy I'll throw out there with Jalen Smith being 5'11", 185 pounds. Another guy that you think is a little maybe small for the position, but played some linebackers, a junior at Alamany High School, and made a lot of plays just because of his instincts and of his awareness. And he is very athletic, and he's a guy – that can definitely, he has a little fast twitch. He's a little more explosive. He's a guy that uh, I think could come onto the radar and be a guy that could actually play a little more of a safety position than a cornerback position for USC. Circling back to Sierra Wright, is there anyone you can comp him to? Maybe a former Trojan player or someone that people would know uh, as far as who he compares to on the field? Not at the top of my head. Um, you know, obviously, Sharice, right, from a physical standpoint, uh, just in terms of size, he kind of has that same frame, and he shares the last name, so that name just comes up, obviously. But in terms of, um, you know, stylistically, Sierra is definitely a bit smoother, not as physical. Uh, Sharice Wright was a guy that would come up and he would belt you, and he played more as a safety sometimes as a cornerback than an actual cornerback, where I think Sierra is a bit more ball skill-oriented, a bit more finesse. Um, very fluid in his transitions. I think that's kind of where we see maybe his most upside is that, you know, he can get out of his backpedal back and run with wide receivers downfield. And that's really a big deal. And that's a big deal when you're talking about playing, you know, man defense. So, I mean, really in terms of style, I would say Elijah Griffin is actually not too far off uh, with Sierra Wright, but in terms of frame, he's a little longer and a little bigger a little more like a Sharice, right? So I would say somewhere maybe in between, there's probably a better comparison out there, but I'm always bad on comparisons when I'm just thinking of it off the top of my head. <laughs> I definitely put you on the spot. So apologies for that. But you did mention bigger fish. I know that's something that Clay Helton mentioned during the early signing period as well. One of them obviously is Rayshon Davis. There's been a lot of winks and a lot of nods. I know Miller Moss has been doing his recruiting Twitter strategy. Where does USC stand? A lot of peer pressure. Yeah, I know. There ha- and even, a I lot think- of weeks, nods, and peer pressure. <laughs> yeah, I think Anthony Beavers joined in on that peer pressure, too. Where does USC stand with Rajon Davis? 
I mean, I think they've got a really, really good shot at Rayshon Davis. I think right now it's kind of Ohio State, potentially. It's a nice spot. You know, obviously, Ohio State played really well the other night, and you're looking at that defense. But I think with USC, practically, because of his family and everything going on, I think that, you know, there's some priorities that come to the top of the, you know, decision-making process. And I think with his family, it definitely feels like USC. Um I think his family actually spent New Year's Eve with Corey Foreman's family and Corey Foreman and Brew McCoy and a bunch of family members. They were all watching the UCLA game together. There's a real kind of tight knit group there. And I think with Rayshon, Sierra Wright and Corey Foreman, that was sort of the core of what USC had to get to, again, sort of get back to take back the West. I know some Trojan fans, they, they think I'm trolling them. They're very irritated with me and mentioning that because they didn't beat Oregon. But we're talking about something differently entirely. We're talking about recruiting, recruiting trail, and the nuances and the, and the sort of ebb and flow that go on with recruiting. And being able to get that core of that defensive class, it's huge. And especially when you're talking about losing Palaye, you know, um, you could dot linebacker depth. You know, a couple of years ago, we're going, wow, so many linebackers at USC, what are they going to do with all these guys? Now we're going, oh my gosh, who are they going to play at linebacker? And so they were really real thin at the end of the season. And a guy like Rayshon Davis fits that defense so perfectly because at modern day, he's more of an edge rusher. At modern day, he's a guy that plays off the edge and he attacks the offensive backfield quite a bit. He, he's really almost just like a for them quite a bit. In USC's defense now, that's sort of how the inside linebackers are. And I think from a physical standpoint, from a profile standpoint, you know, 6'1", 220 pounds nowadays is an inside linebacker, is a middle linebacker. You don't want to put that guy on the line of scrimmage having to fight against a 6'6", 310 off to tackle. Those guys got really long arms. They can just overwhelm you if you don't have that same length. And so I think you want to back Rajon Davis off the line of scrimmage a bit, get him in space, and allow him to continue to attack the offensive backfield. And that's exactly what Todd Orlando's defense does. And that's what we saw from guys like Raymond Goforth, who had a really good year Kanai Munga, those guys had really good years. Kanai Munga almost had as many tackles as he did in the full year. Um, so we've seen development from that position. What would it do to this 2021 class if you do add a guy like Davis? I think it puts USC right at the cusp, no pun intended. I know people are going to say, oh, the cusp. But I think it puts them right at the edge of being a top five class. I don't think they're going to get there. It depends on who else they're able to sign because they could sign a couple more players on top of it. And we know that they're going to be aggressive in the transfer portal. That's going to be a big deal. They're going to go in there. They're going to try to poach a couple more players. I think a lot of teams nowadays are going to leave a few rides there so they can open up for transfers. And this year specifically is interesting because all those guys are going to be immediately eligible. So that's a big deal. So you want to be able to have a little bit of uh, you know, a little bit of margin there at the bo- at the top of your recruiting class after signing day, maybe even, so you can court some of those, you know, players that could come in and play right away for you that are grown men, that are guys that have played college football. Their academics are in order. It's very easy to be able to just come in, plug and play. And so I think just from, uh, I guess, like a score standpoint, the recruiting class with Rajon Davis and just Rajon Davis alone will put them right outside the top five. They're going to end up being probably like seven or six. And you have to realize that there's other schools that are going to sign other players as well. I don't know what Oregon has left to be able to sign, but we saw today USC could have been top five, but Texas A&M and Clemson both got commits. So it was one of those games where USC moved up, but they only moved up to eight because Clemson ended up getting a five-star 
And then, you know, uh, I think A&M got two commits today. So that's also going to play out when we get to February 3rd. Now, when it comes to JT Tuimalau, how much of that is a shot in the dark for the Trojans right now? Uh, they're kind of on the outside looking in. I think that they might have a little better shot than people give them credit for. Uh, they are definitely a dark horse in that respect because people have pre- pretty much written him off for Ohio State or Alabama for most of the year. Um, I think the latest that I was hearing that Oregon was making a pretty good move for him, but Ohio State was still far away the team to beat. And, um, you know, it's just one of those things that USC – They've always kind of sort of been behind on that one. You know, uh, they, they try to make some moves. I think Vic Ciotto is definitely, uh, you know, they, they got into that, that top five, but uh, still on the outside looking in for him. And always heard that JT, Corey Foreman, it was sort of an either or, um, at least towards the end of the year. I mean, probably would, by the time we got into May, that started to be the rumor. Like, yeah, those two guys are not going to go to the same school. I personally see them as different players. I think JT Toy Moloau, is really a guy that is, is kind of going to grow into being the defensive lineman. I kind of thought maybe he's a J2 Fele guy down the line, um, whereas Corey's a guy I think can play on the outside a little more. But in their own mind, I mean, they're, they're you know ranked the same position, and potentially they probably feel like they played the same position, so maybe they don't want to go to the same school. Mm-hmm. Overall, I think just because of the season USC had ending it on that sour note with the Pac-12 championship game losing that, it just, I think USC fans have definitely been a lot, definitely sour about this team, but the recruiting rankings wouldn't suggest that commits feel that way or recruits feel that way. How would you describe maybe the difference between what recruits are seeing from this coaching staff versus maybe what fans are seeing? It's funny because Greg Biggins and I were actually just laughing about that. The perspective from recruits as opposed to respect, the perspective of fans is very, very different. Uh, I think with fans, there's sort of a cumulative knowledge that goes on. And when you're talking about a Trojan fan that's subscribing to USCfootball.com, you're talking about someone who's actively seeking information on the football team. And not just information on the season, but information on a daily basis. So they really keep track and they log sort of what's happened in the process of which USC has gotten from point A to point B, from, you know, the end of sanctions to now, from Pete Carroll winning a national championship to now, from, you know, Steve Sarkeesian being fired to Clay Helton taking over as interim coach to now. They have these windows, these swaths of information, and they analyze and they look at it. Recruits are looking at SportsCenter. (laughs) They're looking at their phones, and they are – sort of taking it from a glance, a sort of cursory knowledge of what the football team is doing. And when you look back at USC and, and that point before the Oregon game, you're 5-0. and They're an undefeated football team. Um, now you can look at every play and you can look at some of those games like Arizona State and Arizona, and you could say, well, man, they're not playing well in those games except for maybe you know the last four minutes of the game. Um, but the recruit he just saw highlights of that game. Oh, USC made a great comeback. Oh, cool, cool. That's cool, man. They're they're picked, they're undefeated this season. Five and zero this season. They're only going to play six games. They only lost one game. That's a big deal. They lost to Oregon. Ah, it was a close game. So, from a standpoint of 
understanding the trajectory of the football team and all these other things. And they're in conversations weekly with the coaching staff. And obviously the coaching staff is, you know, they're going to do their job to sell the program and sell what's happening behind the scenes. And there's some things that we don't know that are happening behind the scenes with USC football that maybe get conveyed to some of the recruits. And so it's very different. It's a very different outlook, a very different perspective from the recruit to the fan. Now, when it comes to USC's revamped video staff, the hype videos, the name image likeness Boulevard stuff that I know gets a lot of heat on the P, uh, does that resonate with recruits? Because I know both Foreman and Wright mentioned some sort, or at least alluded to name image and likeness and things outside of what they do on the football field. So it seems like to a certain degree, it does resonate with recruits. It does resonate. And I think importantly is USC getting ahead of the curve because you have SB 206, which is proposed uh, last year and is supposed to go into effect in 2023. And that's the California fair pay to play act. And so that's something that you can't sit on your hands. You can't be on your heels. You can't be flat footed. If that comes to, p- to pass and players are going to be able to be endorsed by these corporations and these companies you have to build a platform and an avenue in order for those players to take advantage of that. And so if you are going to be ahead of that, and that's going to affect recruiting, that's going to affect the players that are on your roster, um, there's a lot that's coming in the next few years with college football and amateurism. And so I think with USC getting the boulevard and getting the branding and the media and all that stuff sort of in line is huge and they're already sort of, I think it's just testing it out right now. I mean, they're using it sort of as a recruiting ploy a little bit, but also just kind of throwing some stuff out there just to see what works and just to see, you know, how it sort of flows with the brand. And, and, you know, you don't want to do things that kind of make your brand look bad and you don't want to take missteps. So it's really sort of them reemphasizing themselves on social media. And that was a big deal coming into the season. And then also opening up this, really this whole new sort of department, this whole this new area that, again, 2023, uh, this bill has already been passed. It's going to take place. There's other states that are already, you know, get ready to implement this. How the NCAA, you know, reacts to it, they already said that they're going to make moves and they're going to make changes because they know it's inevitable. you got to be ahead of it. And so I think beyond just the sort of, hey, yeah, you know, Corey Foreman talked about it and, and Sierra Wright talked about it. Yeah, name, image, likeness is going to be huge, but it's really huge for the fact that USC already sort of got their foot in the door and they're ready. 2023 comes along, maybe even sooner, because you just don't know how it's going to work with the NTAA. You're hitting the ground running. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we had always uh, knocked USC for, that they were always just behind the power curve in that sense. So it seems like they're trying to change things on that front. Now, I know you haven't done a recruiting podcast since early signing day. So what are your overall thoughts of this class as it stands right now? It's definitely a huge step in the right direction. It's getting back on track to where USC needs to be. You know, they need to be top five. There's too many inherent recruiting advantages on the West coast and for them in Southern California to not be in that conversation of being top five, top three football program when it comes to recruiting. So, you know, that has to follow, obviously, on the football field. We always talked about the trajectory of the football program and where you're going from year to year, you know, Rose Bowl to college football playoff to national championships. And that's sort of what you want to see. And USC's kind of right now in a little bit of a flat line curve. They're a little bit uh, in this spot where, 
you know, you thought maybe they'd have an opportunity this year to be a Pac-12 champion, and it would be a little bit of an asterisk year. You're playing six games. Okay, you go to the Fiesta Bowl. Do you play well against Iowa State, or do you look like Oregon did? Um, I think that's sort of, you know, kind of at this point of, okay, we're, we're, what's the next move? You know, what they have to win a Pac-12 championship. That's the next move for sure. Um, but I think at this point, a lot of fans are frustrated because they felt like after winning that Rose Bowl, going to the Cotton Bowl and losing to Ohio State, you felt like, okay, that's where we're at. Let's not take a step back. And they took a huge step back. And then they made a marginal step forward winning a game. So you're sort of in that back and forth area. I think this class at least reestablishes some of that dominance on the recruiting trail. Um, that's huge for the program, regardless of who the head coach is going to be in the future. If you're a Clay Helton guy and you believe, you know what, I think Clay Helton can get it done. They can build around him. They can give him the support that he hasn't had maybe in the past. And we think he can turn a corner and become a guy that can get you to the college football playoff. And if you're not a Clay Helton guy, then it doesn't matter because you still have to have talent on the roster for the net coach that takes over. And I talked about this a little bit, even with the coaching staff, you've got to have a guy like Dante Williams there. That's going to be sort of your Ed Ergeron, a guy that will overlap, that will be able to recruit and still be able to bring in those guys and introduce them to the new staff and the new coach that comes in. So the thing that kind of, I, I sort of just kind of roll my eyes at are, are the fans that get on the peristyle and they want to get in recruiting threads and tell recruits how they shouldn't come to USC. That just boggles my mind. I mean, I know you're frustrated and you're mad and you just want to burn it all down, but it's really sort of biting your nose off to spite your face. You need to have talent on the roster. There are already gaps, you know, with the offensive line and maybe even the running back position, depending on what we're going to see with transfers, you have to have some talent coming in or it's going to be that much more of a rebuilding process. We know that Urban Meyer is a miracle worker, and he would come into USC and wave his wand, and boom, they'd be in the national championship. But outside that, it's going to be a bigger reclamation project the more you miss on recruits. So, you know, recruiting is still the lifeblood of USC, and it's the lifeblood of any championship program. Now, you mentioned coaching changes. And the hallmark of last year's class was how many offensive linemen they brought in. What does it mean going forward now that USC has moved on from Tim Drevno? That's interesting because, you know, with Tim Drevno, the biggest question for me, and I talked about this in the podcast, was just he wasn't very familiar coaching within spread offenses. He's really more of a pro-style guy. He's come from pretty conservative offenses and that's always been his approach, and that's always been the systems that he's coached in. Everybody tells me, and you know, I've always believed the people that have talked to him or talked to me about Tim Drevno as a coach being a very good coach and being a guy that technically is very sound and he does a good job developing those players. But again, is he the right guy for that system that USC was running? That was a big question. Ultimately, USC felt he wasn't. So now you got to go in a direction where you're bringing in a coach that's got some familiarity with that system that they run, the sort of air raid offense, which I call the sort of air pro offense or maybe pro raid offense, because it's not your traditional classic Mike Leach pro uh, air raid offense. It, it, there's definitely some more pro style stuff to it. You're still losing the traditional tight end and Eric Kromenhoek. They're using some lead blocks with him. Um, they've made some wrinkles and done some things where, you know, from a personnel standpoint, it's not just a straight air raid offense. And, and, and the other thing is, and not to take this off in another tangent, but just with the running game, 
it wasn't like USC didn't run the ball at all. A lot of people kind of take that exaggerated point and go, yeah, USC needs to run the ball more. But they, they did run the ball. They just didn't run the ball well. I think it was 3.2 yards a carry. They really had a lot of negative plays in the off the backfield, the sacks and things like that. And that sort of opens up the question with the running quarterback and running, you know, some of those mesh looks and not having a quarterback that's going to be a threat on the edge to run the football. Um, so I think all those things sort of in a culmination were issues with USC. Now you bring in a guy that has a better knowledge of the system. You're playing with wider splits. You're doing those things that you see in, in regular, you know, air raid offenses and college spread offenses. You know, does USC pr- improve that much in the run game? We're just going to have to wait and see. I mean, they, they got to definitely do some things, I think, from a design standpoint and a play calling standpoint that are going to be different in the run game. You know, it, it, when defenses expected USC to run, like on third and two or third and one, I mean, USC was really bad at running the game, yeah. running the ball. That, that, that was where they really, really could not run the ball. And so that, that's going to be the biggest thing. That, that hurts your red zone offense. you got to be able to run the ball in short yardage. And whatever it's got to be, I think it's it, because, you know, Graham Harrell is still going to be the offensive coordinator. There's still going to be a pass-first offense. You've got to design some ways to get those running backs in space or get do something like from a design standpoint because you're not going to turn around and change personnel and start doing all this stuff. People are like, hey, how come they don't you know hike the ball from under center? Blah blah blah. That's not going to happen. <laughs> that's not going to we just get that out in the open right now. That that that's not really where I see them going to make a lot of changes. I think the changes have to come from the standpoint. And next year you're going to see Slovis back. So I don't know you're going to see the running quarterback. I think that's maybe later on if, you know, Keith Slovis moves on and you get Jackson Dart, who had, you know, 1,200 yards of rushing and 12 touchdowns in high school, maybe a little more of a Sam Darnold type of guy. But I do think you've got to just – you've got to do some things from a design standpoint, from a tendency standpoint, you know, just change it up a little bit. And, yeah, maybe the offensive line coach helps a bit, but I don't think it's going to be the end-all, be-all. And from a recruiting standpoint, yes – you can get somebody out there that's going to be more of a recruiter and get some good recruits, but ultimately there's going to have to be some development off this line because you've already missed on some classes. You've already not really been able to address the, you know, uh, Austin Jackson leaving the NFL. And with this past class, you really haven't addressed uh, Elijah Tucker leaving. Um, you've got six in the last class and they're all three-star guys. There was no franchise type offensive tackle. And the same goes for this class, three offensive linemen, all three-star guys, no like out-of-the-gates guy that, you know, you go, okay, that guy's going to be able to fill in for this guy that's gone on the NFL. There's, there's not really that sort of one-for-one. One. Um, so those, that's already happened. So whoever they bring in is going to have to work with what they have. And I don't want to say it's, you know, it's, it's making lemonade out of lemon. There's still some talented players there, but they're going to be guys that have to be developed because, like I said, out-of-the-gates, we're not talking about five-star All-American guys that are franchise level guys we're talking about guys that you know were were, were lower ranked guys that a lot of other schools didn't think were going to be able to contribute right away circling back to the run game discussion ryan and i had actually talked about this on the parasol podcast this week and i know gerard you and i have both heard rumblings about how the running backs feel on this roster right now and i was wondering you know are they going to have to address the run game more than what they did with uh, the move with Tim Drevno? You know, I know Mike Jinks wasn't technically a Graham Harrell guy, um, but 
given what we kind of saw from Brandon Campbell a little bit on social media right before he signed, do you think that they need to, I know Graham Harrell kind of made it sound like it wasn't that big of a deal. They don't really have run issues, but do you think like you alluded to, they're going to have to address what happened in the run game much more than they did maybe in season or publicly? Yes. Yes. 100%. I I do. I I think it's going to be from a wrinkle standpoint. I think they've got to find some things that they can do well whether it be just keying on a, a certain gap um, personnel wise, feeling like they have something you, you don't want to be um, too predictable. And I think running off that left side, you know, they, they had some flashes there during the season where you're going, okay, they, they really seems like that left side is going to be the side that they're going to be able to go to. Well, I mean, defense is adjusted and they realize, Hey, that's, that's where they want to run the ball. That's where we have to stop the run. And so, yeah, they're going to have to make, some changes and it's going to be interesting because you do lose marquee step you get at least right now we think by Melopi is going to be returning uh we believe Stephen Carr is also going to be returning but neither of those guys are really the power back that marquee step was and marquee step was very good about getting those extra yards and that's very key when you're talking about setting yourself up for a good you know third and short and not getting in a situation where all of a sudden third and it's at six because you didn't get those extra two yards because your guy's really only 190 pounds. So there's going to be a lot of that kind of stuff. Maybe, you know, you have to do more of what they do in real traditional air raid offenses and have more swing passes. You have to implement more screen passes. You really didn't see USC use a screen game very much if at all this past season. Um, You're going to have to find ways to get the ball to your running backs and get them just a little bit of space to make some plays because just running the ball forward out of the shotgun, it just didn't work, and it hasn't worked. And I don't believe it's completely just, oh, you know, the offensive line coach didn't know how to coach his guys how to block. I I don't think it was just that. System-wise, again, you can make the argument that wasn't Tim Drevno's wheelhouse. He maybe, you know, was sort of, you know, doing some things from a split standpoint or, or from just, you know, how they wanted to take on the blocks that didn't really work with, you know, what was required from the skilled players and what was required from the offense at being out of the shotgun all the time. But I think that when he talks about running the ball, yeah, that's going to have to be designed sort of schematic. I think you're going to have to find some different ways uh, to attack the defense, keep them honest. Again, I, I think, you know, the quarterback front is still a big thing. The good thing is that, Next season, they will have more depth at quarterback. So, I mean, this past season, you only had Keaton Slovis and Matt Fink. And that was an issue because, well, just first and foremost, you only got two scholarship quarterbacks on the roster. So one guy goes down, you got one scholarship quarterback on the roster. Maybe that's going to play you a little conservative. It's going to force you into your hand a little bit and not want to run your quarterback. But also, this is the thing I always bring up when it comes to not running the ball and that whole sort of conversation your scouting defense is not really getting a good look because that third team quarterback is the guy that's actually playing against your first team defense in practice. So that's always a big deal. It's like, who's their third team quarterback? Cause people think it's all of the backup quarterbacks. there, you know, throwing the ball against the scouting. That's not the one it works. You've got to have your backup quarterback. Your second guy has got to be there with the first team offense, just in case something happens. So he's always on his hip during practice going against the scouting defense. It's the third team offensive quarterback that is going to be the guy that's going to be throwing against your defense. And it's the same thing with a running game. When you don't have depth at running back, who are you throwing at your first team defense? A bunch of walk-ons. And that's not going to get them ready for playing against, you know, other division one scholarship type running backs that are fast and big. 
when you mention USC's final numbers, do you anticipate them? They probably have to go to the portal to make up that depth as far as both running back and uh, offensive line, just filling in those pieces, right? Yes. Yeah, I think so. And we don't know, we're still kind of at the beginnings of like, what's going to really, what's the portal really going to look like here? You know, as we get into the spring, we're just, I think, getting into the beginning of it. And so, yeah, I I think um, it's tough with the numbers that you have statistically in the run game to to go out there and and rule a big time running back. That's the kind of the issue. I mean, you're having trouble recruiting the position right now with high school players. It's going to be still difficult to be able to get those guys that are college guys that want to just come in. And you've got two senior quarterbacks or excuse me, running backs there that possibly are coming back. So you might just be kind of going into the porthole for just like, you know, some depth. Um, we'll see how that shakes out. That's, that's going to be interesting. The running back position is really kind of sort of up in the air <laughs> in my eyes. Um, from offensive line standpoint, USC has looked to the portal a couple times for offensive linemen. Um, they've been looking really the past two years and they haven't been able to land that guy. That's, you know, a franchise guy. Well, I shouldn't say that. I mean, they did have, um, why is his name escaping me? The kid that transferred in from, uh, it's from Tennessee me too. And it's, it's uh, Drew Richmond. There you go. Drew Richmond. Yeah. Yeah. He comes, he comes in and that is a right tackle. That was a, that was a nice get for them. Cause he ended up, you know, starting quite a few games for USC. And that was, that was big, but they haven't found, like really the left tackle. I mean, that was so clutch getting Elijah Vera Tucker back. That was so clutch. Cause I don't know who you're putting out there uh, against, uh, you know, these guys this season um, to try to protect your quarterback. Cause it, I mean, again, we're going to go back and talk about it, but I mean, be the dead horse here, but you know, King Slovis is not really a runner. So when you have a pocket quarterback, you've got to protect him. I mean, your offensive line is that much more important. So uh, this year, I don't know. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see if they don't get a guy from the portal that can come in and you, you feel confident can play right away and can fill in right away. Uh, it's going to be tough. But the good thing is they do have Elijah Vera Tucker who showed out well this year and he's going to be a, a pretty high draft pick. I think um, that's, you know, a good sell for them. Yeah, just like uh, Austin Jackson was. As far as the portal goes, though, USC did pick up some transfers, safety Xavion Alford and then defensive tackle Ishmael Softser. I know I probably messed that up, Gerard, but what do you see from those two guys? Well, you know, Alfred, we didn't even talk about with the secondary class. I mean, it's a tremendous secondary class that USC signs from the 2021 recruiting class. And then they're able to get a guy like Alfred, who, you know, I saw a little bit of uh, during his junior year. He didn't play much as a senior. He ended up getting a knee injury in ACL. And I think he only played maybe one game his senior year. But before that, I mean, he was a guy that had six interceptions. He had something like 58 tackles as a junior. He's a ball hawk. I mean, he's fast. He ran a four-five-five at the opening regional. Had something like a, you know, almost like a 40-inch leap. Um, he's explosive. He's got really good football IQ. He's an interesting player. I, we talk about not being able to directly replace Talano Hufunga, and I still believe that. But Alfred is a guy that. Although stylistically is a little bit different, I think he's a little more of a free safety, a little more of a ball skills guy. Um, he could play that position. I mean, he did play that position technically for Texas. He was a little bit of a hybrid linebacker safety. Now, I think if Isaiah Polamal goes, Alfred might actually be better playing that position, a little more of a post-safety, single high, playing him in space, 
basically more of a free safety, a guy that's a covered safety. I don't know that you want him down in the box a whole lot, um, but I think, you know, fully recovered from the injury. Um, he was recruited out of high school by Craig Niver and uh, Todd Orlando. So they know in terms of his physical ceiling where he can be. So there's, you know, from an evaluation standpoint, they know what they're getting in Xavier Alford. And so that's a big get for USC. And that's a huge get on top of, you know, all the safeties that they got in this class. You're getting a guy that, you know, at one point in time was pursued by A&M, Alabama. He was like a cusp four-star, five-star guy. Um, now you're able to get him into the program. And I know that he's got to be eyeballing one of those starting safety spots. Uh, with Sopshire, another guy with tremendous potential. What I heard about him from Alabama sources was just the work ethic. Uh, you go to Alabama, you know that defensive tackles and nose tackles specifically grow on trees down there. So you're going to have a bunch of four-star guys, five-star guys ahead of you. And it seemed like with Ishmael, he would have a couple of good practices. Uh, he lost some weight, you know, this past year going into fall camp, and he looked good. And he'd have a week of practice that was really good, and he looked like, okay, that's the guy. That's the guy that was a high four-star, almost a five-star coming out of high school that everybody was after. And then he'd kind of take a step, couple step backs, and, and he would not be consistent. And the consistency is what he needs to have. And that, that comes with maturity. And I think maybe this new start, this fresh start, will be really big for him because he's going to be able to come in and play right away. You know, you're not going to have Marlon Tui-Pelotu there. Uh, Jay, tu, uh, excuse me, Jay Toya is a player that they signed um, out of Simi Valley, Grace Brethren High School, 6'1", 320, 330 pounds. He's a bit more of a, a fire hydrant type safety. He's a big – or excuse me, safety, uh, nose tackle. He's That'd a bit of a, of a guy <laughs> that, yeah, I mean, yeah, six, three, uh, 300 pound uh, safety. Um, well, USC uses, I mean, they use so many safeties now. I mean, five safeties on the field against the uh, Washington state. I mean, you know, I guess we could just kind of throw the whole roster uh, in the safety category, but for, for yeah, Toya, he's a bit more of a run stopper. You know, he's a bit more of a guy that is just going to kind of sit and, and be a body catcher a bit. Uh, whereas Sopshire is a guy that actually has quickness, and um, and just the ability to sort of make those plays and get upfield a bit, and so that's that's a huge deal. I think I, I think I made a comparison. You know, like um, you know, Toya is sort of that you know brick house type of of nose tackle, whereas Sopshire is sort of uh, you know the mobile home that's uh, in the tornado sort of thing. So I mean, they're just, they're just different sort of types of players from a stylistic standpoint. But that's a huge void right now because, I mean, Marlon Tui Polochu started the season out gangbusters for USC. It was interesting to see how, as the season progressed, he became a little less productive. He didn't have quite the tackle numbers and the tackles for losses that he had in the beginning of the year. Again, I mean, this offense is they're going to they're gonna watch your film, they're going to figure you out, and they're going to try to go against you. So you've got to make, you know, those type of adjustments, and that's what, you know, USC did a good job of that uh, with, you know, Kanai Munga, and uh, Rain Goforth and, and Telena Ufungo, and those guys became more of, you know, the tacklers and the guys that were making the plays as you got later in the season. Given Clay Helton's history with quarterbacks, I think people look at two incoming quarterbacks and go, uh-oh, you know, in the same class. What do you take away from both Miller Moss and Jackson's dart coming into this class? I know Helton said that both guys are ready to compete, you know, the, the coach cliches we hear, but what's your take on, on both of those guys? First of all, USC was able to get two quarterbacks and two very good quarterbacks. Because that's been something that they've sort of bungled a little bit in the past when you're looking at, you know, Tate Martell and Tua, uh, Tua Tagovailoa or um, 
I'm trying to think of it, it was Shea Patterson and KJ Costello, uh, you know, DJ and Bryce Young. There, there's a lot of two quarterback classes potentially that USC didn't get either. So here they get two quarterbacks. They had Jake Garcia committed for a long time, but I think this is a better combination for them. This is, a com- this is the combination that you want because you have Miller Moss, who from a stylistic standpoint, pro-style quarterback, and really does a lot of the things that you like from Keaton Slovis. You know, he's a very cerebral quarterback, very polished, throws a very catchable ball, a very good deep ball. Um, I think the one thing that you like about Miller more than you like Keaton Slovis is that Miller is much more of a gregarious, outgoing type of leader. Um, he's definitely a guy that, you know, he was, a, a, you know, part of the recruiting class. You know, he, he pointed out that picture of him having breakfast with Michael Trigg, Corey Foreman, and Sierra Wright. When they all took an unofficial visit, they, they met up in Malibu, and then they took an unofficial visit to campus where, you know, the coaches couldn't host them. It's a recruiting dead period. And Miller Moss was the guy being basically the, you know, auxiliary recruiter for USC. And that's huge, you know, to have a guy that, that is the head of the class that takes that responsibility. USC really hasn't had that a lot. Um, you would think, you know, Sam Darnold, not, not that guy, not that guy. Ricky Town was that guy. Not Sam Darnold. Uh, you look at, uh, you know, uh, you have to go back to like guys like Matt Barkley, um, you know, maybe uh, Cody Kessler to some extent. Those guys that really have been outgoing and kind of bringing the class together. So that's what you get with Miller Moss. Then with Jackson Dart, you're getting the guy that's got the crazy senior stats. Um, has a great senior year, and that's always important. I talked about that a little bit when we were talking about the early signing days that, you know, Miller Moss is a guy that's been, you know, on the radar for a long time and been thought of as a really good quarterback for the past few years. Uh, Jackson Dart was kind of a middling type of guy, three-star. He used his senior year to show that he's one of the top quarterbacks in the country. And so you're, you're getting, you know, one of the top quarterbacks thought of, you know, from his sophomore year up to a guy that is, you know, one of the best senior quarterbacks in the nation. And I think that's big. And, and obviously the intangible we talked about already with, uh, with Jackson Dart is, is the fact that, you know, he could run. He's 220 pounds, 6'3". He's got, you know, some forward lean to him. Uh, you can run him by design or he can scramble and get some. He's not going to be Vince Young, Michael Vick. He's not that type of scrambler, but he's definitely a guy that's, you know, sort of in the mold of Sam Darnold. It's a big, strong guy that can break a tackle if he needs to. And for sure – when you're talking about that mesh read and you're talking about the read option, that's a guy that can get that done. That's a, that's a part of the offense. It's a wrinkle that you can use with a player like that. Plus, I mean, you get 4,700 yards, 67 touchdowns as a senior breaks the Utah record. That's all nice too. So you're getting all above and you're getting, even though both are ranked as quote unquote pro style quarterbacks, I definitely see Jackson Dart being a little more of a sort of in between that dual threat and pro style. Whereas Again, Miller Moss is a prototypical pro-style quarterback. Dart was a guy USC tactically picked up on the early signing period, the start of it. Man Jack, Joseph Man Jack was another guy that actually committed that day, even though you had alluded to it a lot on the P. He was a guy who kind of came out of nowhere. He he played both quarterback and wide receiver, but kind of burst onto the scene starting his junior year, but really in his senior year. Yeah, he, he had a good uh, junior as well, but senior year... Um, they played him everywhere. I mean, he's just a really good football player. The guy's playing quarterback. He's played running back. He's played wide receiver. And that's always something that I just look for from an evaluation standpoint. At the high school level, how much con- contribution can you give to your, your team? Whether, you know, if you're a defender, you know, the thing I always look at with cornerbacks, like you only playing cornerback. That's a little bit of a red flag to me. 
if you're only playing cornerback at the high school level. Because at high school levels, if you're just a cornerback, it's very easy for the offense to just scheme away from you. They're just going to throw the other side of the field. And you can say, oh, well, that's you know, such a big deal. You're taking away half the field. Yeah, not high school level. You know, high school level, it's just, they're just going to go away. You want to see a guy that plays all over the field. The good players, I mean, Telano Lufunga, he was not just a safety in high school. And safety is a position where you can move around, you can make tackles. He played linebacker. They moved him all over the place, played running back. So, you know, Jalen Smith is another guy like that, which is I kind of mentioned him with Telano Lufunga. We don't think of him as that type of player. But really, I mean, he's, you know, 5'11", 185. He's playing a bunch of linebacker in high school just because he can tackle. He's fast. He's explosive. And his high school coaches, they, they want to use him and they want to get something out of him, that athletic ability. You just don't want to put him in a position where he's only affecting the game from one aspect. And so with Manjack, I mean, that's a perfect example. He I don't think he plays much defense. But offensively, man, they get they get everything they can out of that guy. They play it everywhere. They're putting him at quarterback. I mean, he'd probably throw the ball to himself if they could do it. He's everywhere. I mean, he's, he's I think, 2,000-plus total yards, you know, district player of the year. Um, just from that standpoint, he just seems like a really good football player and a very interesting, you know, asset to the the, the receiving core, which, which, you know, again, it's almost like the linebacker core. It's, it's interesting how these things are cyclical because, you know, we're talking about how much depth, you know, when they've got, oh, Palaiye, Ote, and then they get Solomon, Tuilalupupu, and you're just, all oh, these guys they got, and all of a sudden, boom. You know, and in two years, like, okay, well, Solomon hasn't played it down because of his foot injury. And then, you know, Pauly gets hurt, and now he's out. He's transferring. It's like all these guys all of a sudden disappear, and you lost that depth. Re- receivers sort of kind of gone like that a little bit, where they, you know, had a lot of depth. And all of a sudden this year, you started to see it dwindle down because you've got guys that get hurt, uh, like a Kyle Ford, and then guys that start to transfer, like when you're McLean. And so, you know, Manjack and those guys can probably get some reps. And they're probably going to play pretty early. It wasn't the receiver class that I think USC fans wanted because they wanted that five-star top-level guy. We have a lot of questions as to why are they not recruiting better at wide receiver? Why are they getting three-star guys? Michael Jackson's a three-star uh, out of Nevada, Las Vegas. you got Manjack, who's a three-star. And then you had to get Kyron uh, where Hudson away from Oregon, who's a four-star, which I think is a really good get. And a guy that's physical and a guy that's going to be able to go out there and grind and give you a little something different than the other two players that you signed. But they were looking for the Troy Franklins. They were looking for the big-time, you know, high four-star level guys. And it's understandable because if you're talking about recruiting on stats, you know, we talked about you know, going in the porthole and trying to get a running back. It's tough when you've only had one 100-yard rusher the whole season, whole season being six games. But that you, you really it's easy to recruit on stats, and you don't got those stats. You don't have those you know, hey, look at us, look at what we can do, we can showcase your ability, that doesn't really go at running back. But at receiver, it's like, holy crap, man, you've got, I mean, that's perfect offense for receivers. Those guys are putting up crazy stats. And they weren't able to get, you know, that big five-star, you know, level guy. So I think it's a good class, um, but probably, you know, from the standpoint of just uh, when you're just looking at the list and you're looking at stars, you know, the Trojan fans are a little maybe disappointed because they wanted to get, you know, somebody that maybe would replace Amon Ross St. Brown uh, or, or, or Tyler Vance. Because when you look at it from a recruiting standpoint, you're losing two five-stars and you're getting, you know, you're not getting a five-star to replace either one of those guys from a, again, rating standpoint. Why do you think that played out the way it did, this class? I don't know. I really don't know. I, I don't know why USC didn't make Troy Franklin's top four. That 
that's mind blowing to me with the offense and, you know, sort of what they've been doing statistically and schematically for receivers. I really don't have an answer for that question, to be honest with you. I've, I've struggled to try to kind of figure it out. Now, you know, when we're talking about replacing players, you kind of look at recruiting in, in two year cycles. So, you know, you have Michael Pittman leave and then you've got Gary Bryant and you've got Josh Jackson come in. Josh Jackson, the three star. Gary Bryant is a guy that's going to be a guy. Like he's going to be one of those top big time players. Um, and so you did replace, you know, one guy with two guys. But this year, obviously, you're going to lose probably two guys. We haven't heard anything from Tyler Vaughn yet, but he's a senior and he was contemplating maybe leaving last year. He probably leaves. We know Amon St. Brown, Amon Ross St. Brown is, is already gone. Um, so now you're getting three for those two. Um, you still, you know, you have some talent there, certainly, but, you know, it's, it's going to be pretty much, you know, Brew McCoy and, and, and Drake Jackson or Drake London are going to lead the way. Um, and it's going to be a little different. You know, it's going to be a yeah. different makeup. It's going to be still a physical group, but it's going to be interesting to see, I think, how they play off Gary Bryant, who, you know, there was a little frustration from his camp, I think, that he didn't play more. But this next year, when you've got Drake London, who's, you know, obviously he's a tremendous player. He's got going to be a first-round pick. And you've got Brew McCoy. You showed a lot of promise there in that Oregon game. Like, he kind of built some some confidence there. Those guys are big physical guys. Gary Bryant is a guy that they USC really hasn't had. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm going to say Brown a little bit, a little bit. See, Brown kind of a little. But Gary Bryant could stretch the field way more than Amon Ross St. Brown. And so they, they did some interesting things with him. I mean, they put him in off the backfield. We saw that he almost scored. You know, uh, I think it was a UCLA game where they, they put him off the backfield and put him in a swing pass. Um, so that pitch, you know, it was awful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But that, but, but they've, you know, there's some things that they're, they're, they're doing to move him around. I think you have sure. to do that. Um, but I think it's going to be really kind of fun just to watch him play off of those other receivers stylistically. I, I think it's, it's a, it, there's a bigger nuance there than there's been with USC. I mean, the, the Tyler Vaughn's not a real fast guy. I'm on right side Browns. Really, seriously, not a really fast guy. That's going to be his biggest, um, you know, ding in terms of uh, the combine and what have you. Now he could turn around and shock us and run, you know, four four nine or something. But I think you know he's kind of a higher mid four five guy probably in the clock. Not a big guy. Uh, and then you know Drake Jackson and, and and Brew being that that starting four that they use, kind of a possession receiver four. Now you interject a guy like uh, Gary Bryant. I think it changes it all. I mean, in terms of being able to just throw the ball downfield. If USC does it, you know, if they're aggressive and more than anything, if they can have the time, because they got to have the pass protection to throw the ball downfield. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. For time's sake, I'm throwing you on the spot, Gerard. I'm going to go down USC's current class and you can either give me a phrase, a sentence or a word for each guy to kind of describe them or your evaluation. Does that work? Okay. We'll try. You can try Uh, your best. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. First up, Corey Foreman. Oh, this is harder than I thought. Um, <laughs> I started off with an easy one. Yeah, but you want a phrase or something. I would say um, dynamic duo because of Drake Jackson. Interesting. Okay. Next up is Miller Moss. Cerebral throws a fantastic catchable ball. There you go. You're getting the hang of this. Jackson Dart. Big, raw, game changer. Julian Simon. Mm. what the defense needs at the linebacker position. Just speed athletic-wise, a guy that played some good amount of running back, 
I think athleticism, it's a nice bit of skill that's interjected at the linebacker position for USC. Uh, Kyron Ware Henson. Aggressive, grindy. Some of these guys, you know, it just comes out, and some of these things I have to explain. That's fine. I know if I let you go, you'll go, which is great. I'm just, I don't know where we are as far as timing right now. Uh, Michael Trigg. Mike Williams. Prophet Brown. Explosive. Jay Toya. Brick house. Definitely good run stopper. Space eater. Kalen Bullock. Great overall athlete. Fantastic ball skills for a defensive back. Anthony Beavers. Great awareness. Open field tackler. Uh, undervalued stock. Hmm. Zamarian Gordon. Great first name. Fantastic commit graphic. And uh, physically, like, the most impressive defensive back that USC signed. Wow. Jalen Smith. Fantastic overall player. Really fits the athlete category probably better than anybody USC has. And sneaky, sneaky, good talent. Could end up being a guy that kind of comes out of nowhere early. Mm. Brandon Campbell. Great leverage. Uh, plays bigger than he is, and thank God they signed a running back. <laughs> well done. Michael Jackson. Loved Billy Jean. <laughs> How can you not go there with Michael Jackson? You have no, to. No. Uh, a de- yeah, de- no, uh, very uh, polished, um, sort of a little reminiscent. I, I don't want to give him you know, the, the complete comparison, but a little reminiscent of Amon Ra St. Brown in terms of his play style. Mason Murphy. One of the best offensive linemen in California. Lake McGree. Great name. Kind of came out of left field. USC sticking with the tight end position, which I'll just add, hey, tight ends, what about him? This this weekend, I mean, the tight end position, you're going to tell me how it's dead? Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of tight ends make a lot of plays this weekend. Mm-hmm. Colin Mobley. Malik Dorton. Interesting. Okay. Ty Buchanan. Will he play guard or can he play offensive tackle? That's a big question. Max Gibbs. Tremendous upside. Has to watch the weight. That's a big question. Joseph Manjack. Beef jerky. <laughs> that doesn't count. I don't know. It just said Manjack. It just sounds like, a, hey, we're talking about uh, the boulevard and we're talking about branding. Get that guy some beef jerky. You put Manjack on it, it'll sell. <laughs> okay, sure. I'll... Let that slide. Sierra Wright. Good actor. Uh, not sure about the chair. <laughs> fantastic close to a fantastic defensive back class. There you go. Xavier Alford. Oh, you want bonus round? Yeah, we're now. doing okay. bonus round. <laughs> uh, I mean, a really, really good player. Like, really a guy that can be a game changer sort of guy. I, I you know, I saw him play in the offseason, and he was like the go-to guy for the fast Houston team. And um, I just remember everybody going, yeah, that's their guy. And uh, so, I mean, if he could be that guy for USC, uh, it's, it's going to be a huge get. Ishmael Softshare. Much needed. Um, could be, again, another huge get. It, 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 both those guys, it's all potential right there. Well done, Gerard. You you survived my rapid fire on the spot test. So 
Well done. Claps to you. Yeah, I kind of sucked at that. That was hard. No, that was harder. Well. To, yeah. Uh, trying to wrap it up in one, you know, catchy phrase. Well, you did well. But I knew if we tried to go through the rest of the commits it were signees, it would have been a very long pod. So that was my, my solution. But any final thoughts before we wrap this one up? Well, February 3rd, USC's got still some guys that they can potentially get. I mean, we've talked about Rayshon Davis. That's, you know, the sort of the big fish and the name that everybody is circling. Uh, no peer pressure for him, right? <laughs> um, I think uh, JT Tui Molau, we're going to kind of keep our ear to ground and see if uh, there's more going on with USC and him, if they've gotten some more traction uh, behind the scenes. I mean, USC right now probably wants to lay low and in the shadows if they do have any kind of real shot at him. Um, we're going to see what happens with the running back position. Okay. You've got two guys that are still out there. You've got Byron Cardwell, the four-star running back out of San Diego. He's a guy that USC just kind of seems like they've fallen and faded a little bit for him. Obviously, like I talked about with the, the statistics at the running game, it's hard to recruit off of that. And, you know, UCLA, Oregon, uh, you know, they've kind of, I think, become the lead schools for him just because they're running the football more. Um, Alton McCaskill out of Conroe, Texas, 6'1", 195-pound running back, a three-star, but a guy that USC has been recruiting really hard. Could they potentially make a move with him? You know, I think Oklahoma State is there. Uh, he has USC in his top three or four. Um, but again, can they sign that second running back out of high school and not have to go to the portal for it? All good points. Any updates on your recruiting podcast schedule for the masses, or am I putting you on the spot again? <laughs> No update. That thing is so takes so long to do, and there's other things going on that, uh, yeah, it's tough. It's um, it's uh, I'll get to it. You know, it's, we got we got this. We got this. Okay, we got this. This was we, we got something. Yes, it's podcast. Yes, it's not me answering. You know, 900 questions in a row. Uh, but um, hopefully, it's you know some information and some updated insight as to what's going on with USC football recruiting. And uh, we'll see, you know, hopefully 2021 will be a much better year for everybody. Yeah. Uh, Keely and I will get to see each other in person <laughs> again. And uh, we'll get to be there at USC and maybe see spring football practice. Man, optimistic. Optimistic to end the pod, Gerard. Very nice. Well, thank you for letting me crash your recruiting podcast. Um, that's going to wrap it up. That's Gerard. I'm Keely. We'll see y'all next time. You can now relive the best moments of the UEFA Champions League 24-7. The UEFA Champions League channel is a new 24-hour streaming channel serving non-stop goals, highlights, and full match replays from the world's most prestigious club competition. Reminisce on your favorite moments, legendary players, and brilliant goals with the UEFA Champions League channel, streaming around the clock on Pluto TV and the CBS Sports app.